This is Ryan Habana. You are listening to Echo Zoe Radio, episode 35 for March 2011. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio. I'm your host, Andy Olson, proprietor of EchoZoe.com. Thanks for joining me for yet another episode. As our guest mentioned at the beginning, this is episode number 35 for March 2011. My friend and ministry partner, Ryan Habana, is back for another episode. Today we're discussing sanctification. Ryan has a new book out called The Pilgrim's Path, which is all about sanctification. After the interview, I'll give out more information on the book. Well, welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining me again for another episode. Always a pleasure to be here. So this month we're going to talk about sanctification. And uh, the basis of our discussion is your newest book uh, called The Pilgrim's Path. came out in uh, October. Yep, I think it was sometime in, in, in early fall, I think. Just, just before our conference? Yep. So let's just jump right in. We're talking today about sanctification or uh, pursuing holiness. And the book is called The Pilgrim's Path. Um, what are you telling your readers just through the title of, your book, of the book? Well, one part of our Christian worldview that I think needs to be uh, solidified is the idea that we are pilgrims. Uh, and as far as uh, the scriptures go, it's very clear uh, from a reading of the scriptures, for instance, uh, the Apostle Peter tells us that uh, as pilgrims we are to abstain from flesh that war against the souls. And uh, in Hebrews, the uh, patriarchs, our forefathers, uh, confessed themselves as pilgrims. So what a pilgrim is, is a lot of times with, uh, with us growing up in America, we think of the pilgrims as the people that came from England. But the, a pilgrim is one that is, is not in their homeland and is is journeying someplace else. So a pilgrim, in the theological sense of the term, is in this world we are pilgrims. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. So we are journeying towards the kingdom of God. And so just from that title, uh, the title of the book, The Pilgrim's Path, first off, we're pilgrims. Secondly, uh, path. A path is uh, what one takes. And mm-hmm. early on in the book, um, uh, actually chapter two is, is called the two gates. And those are the entrances to the paths of eternal destiny. So I draw on our Lord's imagery regarding the narrow and broad paths. So uh, really the pilgrim's path is we as pilgrims journeying towards the kingdom of heaven, confessing ourselves that this is not our own land. How are we to walk? So the pilgrim's path is the path that God has carved for his people to walk. So in the book, we, we explore the prescriptions of how we are to uh, walk according to the Spirit. And so path also has the nuances of walking. Mm-hmm. And that's a very central thrust of the book is uh, exploring how we walk by the Spirit of God. And you uh, start out the book kind of introducing why you know how you got started and why a book on sanctification mm-hmm. yeah 
the seeds for this book, even though it was just public published last year, the seeds were sown all the way back in the late nineties when I was in seminary. Uh, there was a a, a, a contest f- for uh, a scholarship. It was a writing contest, and the topic was sanctification. And I can't even remember what the what the scholarship was. Uh, the amount was it was a, a couple thousand dollars. But the topic that one had to write on was on sanctification. And um, by the Lord's grace, I did actually become uh, one of the recipients of the scholarship for uh, writing this paper. And the the concept, the title of the paper was How We Walk by the Spirit. And the response to the paper uh, was very, very positive from both professors there and pastors that were in vocational ministry that read it. So that was just kind of the the beginnings and the framework that was established there continued to be developed through my ministerial work over the next 10 years uh, until I had uh, I had more than enough for for a book and that so how you you want you walk how one is called the walk by the spirit is the central thrust of the book but uh, the the kind of imagery throughout the book is drawn a lot from Bunyan's uh, the Pilgrim's Progress it's um, the journey from wretchedness to glory. Mm-hmm. And while Bunyan is an allegory, uh, and this is a, a non-fictional, uh, non-fictional expositional work, still I, I kind of wanted to incorporate some of that imagery that uh, is so beloved in Bunyan of journeying from wretchedness to glory. And that really, again, is our calling as pilgrims. We're journeying mm-hmm. from being removed from the wretchedness of our sinful condition and being transformed into the image of Christ, which uh, is our journey as pilgrims. So that was really the the beginning of the work. And uh, as I progressed through um, preaching and teaching, I found just more and more support for what it means to really truly means biblically to walk by the Spirit. And thus I found, um, I went through actually several different concepts and titles to um, to kind of apply the book to, but the Pilgrim's Path is one that actually stuck. Mm-hmm. It was so closely tied to uh, the uh, newsletter we put out through Signet Ring every month. I often confuse the titles. I know it, as even part of the ministry, I confuse the titles. But yeah, Pil- Pilgrim's Compass versus Pilgrim's Path. Yeah, a lot of people, and actually I'm a musician too, and one of my songs on my album is the Pilgrim's Song. So people <laughs> ask, what, what's your deal with Pilgrim's? <laughs> but I, I, um, I do like the imagery of Pilgrim's. I, I, I just like it because uh, in, in this world, it's it's – if we can get that worldview that mm-hmm. we're pilgrims, that this isn't our land, that we are journeying towards the kingdom of Christ, and that is where our true citizenship lies, is in the kingdom that is already reality and that we're constituents of that kingdom, but this world is not yet the kingdom of Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's it's something that ch- the church often misses, and it, it's it, throughout church history, it, not understanding us as pilgrims has led to all sorts of not only false theology, but abominable practices. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I do like the pilgrims, the pilgrim well, it's interesting concept. you say that because, you know, I've, I've been doing interviews lately talking about different false teachings and stuff, and, and it's it's uh, kind of interesting that you bring that up because it seems that, you know, I talked about with Christine Peck last month, this new apostolic reformation seems to be growing, you know, leaps and bounds lately. And... Um, you did a good job by by calling us pilgrims. It, it's good to show us that 
in juxtaposition to the new apostolic reformation that we're just here passing through whereas their view is more we need to take over right yeah a a, a dominion reconstructionist theology whereas mm-hmm. uh and, and it is it's it's um we when you look in uh in hebrews chapter 11 which um a lot of the pilgrim imagery is is from you see that you know um you, of course, through the the power of of God and, and by faith, there were those that that conquered kingdoms, and those that um, did many mighty works. But as you conclude that um, wonderful uh, polemic given by the mysterious author of Hebrews in, in Hebrews eleven, you find that he concludes with, "But then there's those that were sawn in half and destitute." Uh, wandering, and um, he says these are the ones that the world the world was not worthy, and they wanted to obtain what a better resurrection. So realizing that this uh, realm is not our realm, and Jesus even said that you are not of the world as I am not of the of the world. Now that doesn't mean we're on on par with Jesus and His nature and His power. Far from it. Right. But being in Him. Mm-hmm causes us and associated with his name and with his gospel causes us to be associated with Christ and remember what he was like here uh, during his first visitation. Uh, the son of man had nowhere to lay his head. And um, yeah, and he made no allusions to the fact that if he wanted to take over the world at that time, it, it would have been he could no, have. no effort at all on his part to do right, so. Just a word would have been, would have, um, would have brought him legions of angels. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, he, but how would the scriptures be fulfilled? And the, the the thing there is also is he could have done that the, theoretically, he could have done that. But then the kingdom would have been left without a constituency mm-hmm. because he would not have gone to the cross. He would not have purchased his people, and therefore, all people would still be in their sins, and thus there is no kingdom that is populated. So our Lord is, is the <laughs> wisest of the wise, and mm-hmm. we learn from him. Uh, he suffered in the flesh. We must arm ourselves with the same uh, worldview, and that's actually a part of the book. There is a uh, a chapter which is entitled uh, kind of keeping with the, uh, the walking and path imagery, the stones in our shoes, mm-hmm. uh, how we deal with suffering on this pilgrim's path. And it's not to pick up arms, nor is it to... Uh, necessarily uh, change the world. Now, again, we can get into all sorts of issues about what's the Christian's place in democracy, but ultimately, within the gospel, our marching orders are to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel. That is our f- that's a first priority, uh, because we know that ultimately, uh, unless you're reading the Bible through a completely wrong lens, this world is going to get worse before it gets better. And it's going to get better through divine intervention, through mm-hmm. a theocracy being set up with Jesus himself physically ruling. Uh, so um, that's the, the pilgrim worldview. And that's the, to understand you're a pilgrim is to understand that you are going to, to suffer on this path as we go to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're, uh, I, th- I think I had a pretty typical experience as a new Christian about 12 years ago. We're first saved. Uh, a lot of times Christians are so grateful for that sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf when we um, are fa- brought face-to-face with the law, and the law does its work, and it crushes us, and it breaks us. And then 
we understand the cross and we repent and we trust in that sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And then um, we immediately want to become more holy. We want to, we desire to begin that process of sanctification. But in our uh, immaturity, we often look to that same law that broke us and think that somehow we're going to be sanctified through that law by now trying to perform that law that we couldn't perform before we were saved. What is that relationship between the believer and the law? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right in that your experience uh, in one one sense echoes mine is there is this, when you are saved and indeed the law crushes you as it is it should the the law reveals us as as sinners and the dire need that we need for a savior because there is nothing that we can do in ourselves to escape our sinful condition mm-hmm. so that's the bad news that's the the utter bad news and that needs to be there um now the law is is a uh, a tricky term uh, and whenever you use the word law, um, and whenever the scriptures use the, use the word law, you, you want to pay particular attention to what, uh, to the context, because in one sense, we are no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. In another sense, the law is still binding upon us in the sense that morally, we still, as God's people, should not murder should not uh, commit adultery. Uh, and Jesus stresses these things in the uh, um, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we aren't saved by observing these things either, and that's the tricky thing. Now, we get excited about salvation, and I think it's natural for us as redeemed people of God, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. And as you said, in our immaturity, we oftentimes pursue ways of sanctification that oftentimes are more hindering than they are helpful. And one of the ways is through legalism, through thinking that we are going to earn God's uh, pleasure and earn his favor through what we do. And the scriptures are very clear that uh, the only way we are holy. The only way we have uh, the Lord's pleasure upon us is through his Son. And that is applied to us by grace through faith. And I think that is one of the first places as far as sanctification that one needs to understand that uh, there is not anything we can do in and of ourselves that is going to earn God's favor. The only way that God's favor can be placed upon us is through the work of Jesus Christ, and that work is applied to us by grace through faith. Now, um, one of the ways I think practically, because I do believe in, and this book does teach what's called progressive sanctification. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do believe that as we um, as we mature as Christians, we do progress in becoming sanctified. Now, let's stop and. And define the word sanctification because that's a word that, again, a lot of maybe of perhaps immature Christians or ones that are still uh, uh, on the milk, as we read in Hebrews 5, 
sanctification is uh, in its in its essence means being set apart and when we speak of sanctification in reference to the uh, to one's life we're speaking of being set apart from sin to righteousness so that is a process now in one sense we are sanctified entirely and that's speaking of our position in Christ mm-hmm. in him we have been sanctified, and I, I go through this in uh, in chapter three. That in his, we need to understand that we have been sanctified, we have been forgiven, and that is key to pursuing sanctification. Because if we think we are going to somehow become more holy by our own efforts, uh, it, in, like I, I note later on in the book, that's a, it's a pitfall. It, it, that is something that is going to cause you to fall in, in a pit rather than progress. So we have to ask ourselves, um, first and foremost, how regarding my standing before God, how am I uh, at peace with him? And uh, Jerry Bridges has a really, really um, powerful quote that I think needs to be anchored. This, 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 the teaching of this quote needs to be anchored because in, in the Christian heart, because it's a necessary foundation for pursuing sanctification. Uh, and Bridges, um, notes that right now, even in, even practically where we still sin, we stand before the father as holy as will ever be because of the work of Christ mm-hmm. positionally. So there is nothing that we can do or not do if we are in Christ that is going to make us more or less holy, positionally in him. Mm-hmm. And understanding that, and Bridges talks about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And I do like that concept because the gospel is not something we ever move away from. Mm-hmm. In fact, the gospel, the more we become, I'm convinced the more we progress on the path of purification, the more the gospel comes into focus, the more the gospel comes into full view, the more sweeter it becomes. And in eternity, the gospel isn't something that just gets it started. The gospel is something that saturates our lives, the good news that Christ has saved us and is saving us and will save us. And even in eternity, the reason we are holy before him, the reason we are righteous both positionally at that time and practically is because of Christ's righteousness. That places our focus where it needs to be, not on ourselves, but on Christ. And that, um, you know, so the law is there to show us our sin, but also to give us the um, the guidelines of what righteousness is. And indeed, we are to pursue that. But we have to understand how we are pursuing it and why we are pursuing it. If we are pursuing it at all, is because Christ is working in us. Why we are pursuing it is because Christ died for us, has sent a spirit into our hearts, and now he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Having that worldview, I think, is essential to actually making practical progress on the path of sanctification. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that you brought up this um, this idea of the gospel being not just the beginning, but saturating our whole lives, because it's something that I've kind of alluded to here and there for months for several episodes and I, and I don't remember if it made it into the the podcast last month but I re, I specifically remember talking to Christine Pack about this idea that that as I've matured in faith I've come to realize that that the cross isn't just about salvation it's it's everything and it's not just 
for here in our mortal lives, but it's forever. And, and I, I've talked before about this idea of like the turnstile Christian who I, to be as kind as I can, I'll just say is, is more of an immature Christian in that they come to this. And, and I was there at one point myself, you come to this, um, this view that the cross is like a turnstile and that you, when you receive the, the gospel, you get the coin that it takes you put in the turnstile to get it to, to advance so you can get through, but that that's it. And that mm-hmm. once you're there, you have to, you almost get into pietism or. Yeah. Now it's up to you. It's right. almost like right. Jesus did his part. He did his part. Now no. it's, now it's your turn to do your part, which is totally foreign to exactly. the biblical uh, yeah. teaching. It, it took me years to, to really get a, my, my mind wrapped around it and being saturated in good teaching and being in, in, in a good church and mm-hmm. around good pastors and, and good, brothers and sisters who have matured greater than I have and can, can kind of pass this along. But it, it's been, it, it's such a, an awesome experience awakening to that and, and going through that maturing process and understanding that, no, the gospel is, is not just the beginning. It's the middle, it's the end and everything in between. Right. And you know, what's interesting is the more I, by God's grace, start to scratch the surface on the word of God. And that's all we're doing is scratching mm-hmm. the surface you see how the gospel really, the gospel saturates the Bible. It's what the Bible is all about from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And um, the... Yeah, there actually are study Bibles where that I'm thinking of one in particular, I think it's called the Jesus Study Bible. Mm-hmm. Every single page is, he, he the commentator that wrote the study Bible will show that Jesus is on this page and this is where and this is how. Yes, and it's, it, it is all through the scriptures, which is why I think expositional preaching is is so uh fruitful mm-hmm. uh if done through that lens um because remember our lord himself said to the uh the pharisees in john chapter 5 you search the scriptures because in them they, you think you have light yet you re- you refuse to come to me for it is they that testify of me so throughout all the pages of the old testament and of course all the pages of the new we see the teaching regarding uh messianic salvation the person and work of christ and um looking even at, at we see it at the beginning starting with genesis three fifteen, and, and at the end um the gospel is going to be when we enter into the fullness of glory when we're raised from the dead and we enter into the new jerusalem to be with our king forever first off the foundations of the city on the foundation of the city, you have written on the, it's called 12 foundations, mm-hmm. which is 12 foundation of the part of the one foundation. Uh, they're written with the names of the 12 apostles. And what I found fascinating about that is that is the foundation of the city. You have the gates, which are the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we see there, even though uh, we the names of the 12 tribes of Israel go back farther than the names of the apostles. It's the teaching of the apostles, which is the, the once and for all delivering of the faith, mm-hmm. um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of the city of God. Now, I do think that's going to be literal, but I also think we can't, we've we got to be careful not to miss the symbolism that is there. Mm-hmm. I do think these will be, this is literal foundation of the new Jerusalem, but we're going to see that and be reminded for all eternity, that it's the gospel, that that the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, that has really created this city and all of its constituents. So, 
And, and again, remembering when you read that wonderful, you know, the wonderful ending to the book, that in the middle is the lamb. He's still called the lamb, the lamb that purchased us, uh, who still bears the scars. So throughout all eternity, we are going to be, to be living and breathing and taking in and hearing our Lord himself teach about the gospel. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people that maybe even just first become Christians, they hear that, and they may not be that excited about that. But the more you become acquainted with the teaching of Christ, the more you just, uh, immer- by grace through faith, become immersed in who he is and what he's done, uh, there isn't anything that you really would rather do in all the universe than sit at the feet of your master who has the scars and listen to him teach on his wonderful work that purchased us. Amen. Well, the next uh, point that I came across that I, I kind of wanted to get into was uh, the illustration that Jesus gave of the wide and the narrow gates. And what does that teach about sanctification? Well, that's, and that comes really early in the book. And I, th- and I think it's important before, if we're going to start thinking about becoming holy, the, the first thing we need to be concerned with is are we really saved and we can't just assume people understand the terms of the gospel Uh, that assumption uh, has been tragic and i think it's led to so many of the problems that we see uh, in contemporary evangelicalism right now but the two gates is is uh, and the the broad and the narrow paths are drawn from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says tells us to enter by the narrow gate, uh, and that is the narrow gate is the only way one is able to enter into the kingdom, mm-hmm. and it's with difficulty, and therefore if we are are asking, you know, what must I do to become sanctified, become more like Jesus, we need to make sure we've, we've entered into the, the kingdom on his terms. So uh, the, the wide gate encapsulates um, all of the other ways that people pursue God or even pursue his kingdom. And that's really, or, or even pursue happiness in themselves the wide gate is basically by default anything that is not in the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is the uh, it's the teaching of Christ which is the again the terms of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh you must submit to him his words and his terms in order to be saved and that is as uh as we step back and look at the whole of the book of Matthew as well as the whole of the New Testament the what was delivered of first importance was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, true God and true man, uh, lived a sinless life, crucified, died for the sins of the world, every tribe, every uh, tongue, and nation, and um, nailed uh, the the sins of his people to the cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, and we read at the end of Matthew, he commissions his apostles to go out and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And um, as I like to say a lot of times in my preaching, that commission has reached us. We're 2,000 years later, halfway around the world here in Minnesota, where we're doing this podcast. 
and that commission has reached us. That message has reached us. And that's how we enter the narrow gate is recognizing ourselves as sinners. And when we are confronted with the law that even Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, we recognize that we do not live up to these things. We do uh, transgress the law of do not murder, even if we do not physically kill someone, because we are murderers at heart. As well, the same with adultery, and the list goes on. Hypocrisy. And that doesn't minimize the moral law that Jesus gives there. No, we still loathe murder. We loathe adultery. But we realize we fall short. We submit to him on his terms, and he, uh, he has promised that the one that comes to him through repentance and faith, trusting in his person and work, he will by no means cast out. And he doesn't leave us there either. And that's where we need to understand. When we understand the gospel on its own terms, and we submit to the gospel on its terms, that is where the process of purification begins. The Lord saves us, forgives us, but he certainly doesn't leave us. He then begins to work in us. And that is a process. As um, we see, the Lord, and that's what sanctification is, um, at least when we speak of it in the practical terms, is being set apart from sin and set apart to the king and his righteousness. So the broad gate is anything that does not uh, correspond with what Jesus taught regarding the terms of entering the kingdom of God. And we see that in the teaching of Christ as well as the teaching of his apostles, who, as we see in, in Hebrews, the word, we must not uh, neglect this word. It was first spoken by the Lord and then confirmed by those who heard. So that is his message. So the broad gate is your default position. You're born walking that that wide gate and broad path. And it's by being born again through the uh, power of the Holy Spirit that you enter the narrow gate. And that narrow gate is where one begins the path, the pilgrim's path of purification. Well, the process of sanctification uh, often compared to the battle imagery or mm -hmm. war imagery, what similarities are there with that kind of imagery just in um, who are the actors? What are the strategies and the goals? Yep. Yeah, that's it's keto. You're really talking about worldview issues here. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's it's important we get our worldviews straight regarding these things cuz it will help us. Uh we and the way we get our worldview straight is through learning, hearing and putting into practice what the word of God says. And the Word of God does speak of our time here in warfare terms. Um, and that that uh, imagery is peppered throughout the book. And well, even first as, um, you know, as pilgrims, uh, we are to abstain from sinful passions that wage war against the, the soul. So already even in, our, in the context of Peter calling us pilgrims, he also speaks of our status as being at war. Now, we're at war with... Um, for the first and there's really three um there's a three pronged attack as far as what wars against our souls and the most famous enemy is our spiritual enemy and that is uh satan himself and his minions and we we do well 
to recognize that uh, Satan is real, that he has a host of angelic um, comrades that are seeking the ruin of the people of God. And he is there to, to uh, seek to dishonor the name of God, dishonor the name of Christ, and that is his aim. So we need to recognize that. But we also need to make sure we don't fall into some of the pitfalls that have been there and have either an unhealthy obsession with the dark spiritual realm or um, denying its existence. Those are the two two pitfalls that you can fall into on either side. We need to recognize they're there. We need to resist, but ultimately... We need to fix our eyes on our conqueror. That is how we are going to be able to endure this this time of conflict with that spiritual enemy. Another, the the second prong is is the world. It's the 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 fallen, corrupt climate that surrounds us, and that, as we know, can be very seducing. And it the world wars against our soul. Now the battle here, it, and, and oftentimes we think of of battle as. Um, and it's very easy for us to think of this way, that if we fight well, we're going to be brought peace in this world. But in, the, in fact, the reverse is really true in this, and this is part and parcel to our, our place as pilgrims here, is when you're fighting the battle well, is oftentimes when you're going to have the least amount of peace here, because you're at odds with the world. Mm-hmm. You're at odds with the prince of the power of the world. And as I noted in the book, the most dangerous enemy isn't Satan, nor is it the world. To us, the most dangerous enemy is our fallen human nature, the sinful flesh. Because the ba- the battle, what the battle is about isn't about getting peace in this world, which oftentimes it's so easy to fit, you know, that that imagery into our mind if we're if we're somehow suffering in this world we got to be losing because what victorious person is suffering however the battle isn't about whether we suffer or not or whether we feel good or not the battle is about our obedience to god that's where the spiritual war lies the battle is for your allegiance and obedience to the king of kings so the most dangerous enemy is your flesh your your fallen sinful nature because that is what's going to pull you away from Christ and his precepts. Uh, It's the most immediate foe, and that's why the good news is when we we see Paul say, I have been crucified with Christ, yet yet I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The old self was the flesh, as we read also in Galatians, those who are Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. So that really is the best news is that our old fallen sinful self uh, has been nailed to the cross. And when we believe, Christ gives us his righteousness. And uh, then we can start, uh, then the battle really starts. That's when the battle starts is when that first drip of regeneration comes into our hearts and minds because formerly we were walking in accordance with all these things. We were going along with them. When Christ gives us regeneration, now we have this new nature that desires holiness 
and thus the battle begins. And the battle is is going to go on until we enter glory. And that's a, another world worldview issue. There mm-hmm. is we must get beyond this belief that somehow in this life we're going to reach our goal. It doesn't happen until we are with Christ. And and really biblically, our goal is not fully and totally reached until we're raised from the dead or changed when he returns. Um, but certainly uh, the the conflict, one, uh, you know, once we, if, if we do die before the Lord returns, the conflict is 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 gone because we've gone to be with the Lord um and and left our bodies but uh so it, having those those things clarified that we're not going to reach perfection here and understanding that um for instance um the apostle John tells us if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us it's a product of self-deception to think this side of glory we are somehow without sin but that means the battle's always going to be going on. So, and we're not going to reach that until Christ, in, until the appointed time. But that's sure. We are going to reach it. It's it's so sure that it's often spoken of in the past tense. Mm-hmm. One more reason we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Right. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because it reminds us why we're saved. And if you do start thinking... um. And actually, this is something that the more mature, the more mature you get in Christ, the less you think that this is really something attainable, mm-hmm. because the the more we mature in Christ, the closer we be, we become to Christ, the more clear and the more highlighted our own sins are. Mm-hmm. So, as I know, that's kind of a paradox because the more the more sanctified you become, really the less sanctified you feel, mm-hmm. at least in this world. Because and it's not that you aren't progressing, you are. But just like anything, the closer you get to the light, the more your uh, your imperfections Well, that leads right into my next question. I was going to ask you, um, what are the paradoxes of purification? Well, that's one big one there. <laughs> yep. <You> just, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the, the paradox yeah, of the I purification. Should, I should have given this to you before. Yeah, <laughs> yep, I answered my questions before I get to them. There's the prep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the big paradoxes of, of purification. And another par- paradox is what we one we already talked about, too, is the issue of sanctification. Um, in Christ, we are, it, once you, you believe, you are holy and righteous before the Father mm-hmm. because he is your righteousness. And he took your sin and nailed it to the cross, and that happened once and for all. Uh, so that's, you are sanctified once and for all, and the Bible uses that language. But the Bible still te- teaches that sanctifi- sanctification is a process. That once and for all sacrifice is being applied to us through a process. It's a process of purification, but it's also a, a paradox. I mean, we, we see these things and they're not contradictions. They're just paradoxes in the sense that, boy, at first glance, it seems like, well, how can I already be, be 100% sanctified, but also be going through a process of mm-hmm. sanctification? And it's just different matters of looking at the, biblically looking at the biblical evidence. We are saved once and for all through the work of Christ because his work is perfect, but he has chosen to bring his work into our lives through a process. So even though we aren't 
totally sanctified in practice yet, it is guaranteed that his people will be totally sanctified in practice one day because he authored our salvation, he secures us, nothing can uh, can snatch us out of his hands, and he has promised to finish what he started. Mm-hmm. So that's those, that's another paradox, is how can we already be sanctified but also be talking about pursuing sanctification? Um, the Bible teaches on it, but at first glance it seems like a paradox. It's kind of like, too, also, the more sanctified you get, the less sanctified you feel. It's mm-hmm. kind of a paradox. But um, uh, I think we will feel... Uh, and feelings are legitimate. I mean, I, I we, we got to be careful not to let our feelings affect our, uh, our our theology when they could affect them in a bad way. But um, there will be a time where we do feel sanctified and fully sanctified. But who knows what that's going to feel like? Mm-hmm. Because all we've ever known through our, our existence is this. We've either known what it's like to be alienated from God and not even being aware that there's this issue, or this battle of contending against the flesh which wars against uh, our soul. And it's a reality, and we need to remember it's a reality uh, so that we can mortify the flesh. We're commanded to mortify, which means to put to death. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, and that's a command to the New Covenant community. Well, in a way, you're kind of leading into my next question, and in a way, you already started, or you already, in a way, answered it. And that is, how can believers be encouraged in light of this reality that purification is both a process, but that we won't see it completed on this side of glory. I think the, the best encouragement, there's, there's two, two areas of encouragement here. First off, if you're battling, that's a really, really, really good sign. Mm-hmm. It's the person that is unregenerate that doesn't care, that isn't really in the midst of the battle. And if you're believing Christ on his terms, uh, you're believing the one true gospel, and you are contending against sin, even though you may be tripping and stumbling and failing, as surely you are. If you don't think you are, you're maybe you're in a little bit more trouble there then. Uh, be encouraged that it is the ones that are in the battle, that are contending, that are fighting. These are the ones that are promised ultimate victory over these things in practice because so that's that's one area of encouragement even though it can be hard it can be frustrating it can be grieving because when we sin we grieve the holy spirit who is purifying us we grieve our king who has purchased us we grieve our father who planned this whole thing and made us our children made us his children we grieve him and that should tear us up because we love him, and we don't want to love him in just mere word. We want to love him in deed and truth. So, but the fact that you're in the midst of that battle is a sign. If you believe in the gospel on Christ's terms and you're in that battle, it's a sign that you're regenerate because it's the regenerate ones who both believe the gospel and are fighting against their flesh. So that's one area of encouragement. The second one is... Um, is he who began a good work in you is going to bring it into com- completion. And that's, I think, the most encouraging thing, is keeping your eyes fixed on that finish line. You know Christ is going to be true to his word. Um, we know that. He cannot lie. And the one that comes to him, he will by no means 
cast out. And also, all that the Father gives him will come to him. And the one that the Father draws, he will by no means cast out. So you are being transformed right now, and you know the Father is going to finish his work because he's already completed it in the Son. So that to me, that's the most encouraging thing is our sanctification, ultimate sanctification, even now. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our faithfulness because if it was, we would fall. It's dependent on his faithfulness. And I think that is the most, again, our encouragement is rooted in him and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So that's where we should place our trust in our, in our really our ultimate encouragement is what he is going to do and what he's doing right now. It came to mind uh, what you were talking about, this idea that, that being in the battle is, is the sign. And just reflect upon the communion, you know. Mm-hmm. We just went through communion last Sunday mm-hmm. and uh, this, or two Sundays ago now, actually. But uh, this, this, this idea that if you think you're worthy to receive the communion, you're not. Mm-hmm. If you don't think you're worthy, that's a sure sign. sign that you are worthy. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah. And it's I, a little sidebar. But. Yes. <laughs> it's a good sidebar and it's on, on topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I do think that that's a, a key dynamic for us to understand that. Now, we can't let them, again, we can't let that attitude, though, uh, just be, just because, okay, you, you kind of like tossing it off, like, oh, well, this is the way it's supposed to be, so I'm just... Right. right. In fa- and, and in fact, usually that's not going to be the case. It's, right. oh, you know, we need to understand, okay, I'm in the battle. Christ has promised me victory here. In fact, he's guaranteed victory because of what he has done. He's exhorted me to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. The reason why? Because he is at work in me working to will for his good pleasure. So, again, that that should motivate us all the more to, to battle, to just because we know we're not going to um, become perfect before um, we either are caught up with him in the air or before we die. Um, that still still should be motivation, and, that, and and again, that's the whole. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit is our comforter and the one that fuels us. So, um, but yeah, when if we start getting, you know, kind of weary in the battle, saying, "Well, I'm in the battle. That's good enough." No, you. I mean, we're called to pick up arms mm-hmm. and fight. Mm-hmm. You know, in accordance with what fight our sin in accordance with what He has has given. Mm-hmm. Well. Um... Next thing I uh, wanted to get into was uh, spiritual pitfalls, how we can recognize signs of spiritual pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Um, things like uh, you um, have some sections of one of the, I think it's chapter four, on uh, the lure of secret knowledge, right? Uh, legalism, asceticism, yep. stuff like that. Those are drawn out of um, the book of Colossians. And uh, what's interesting is in the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of, he really ta- he's, he talks about secret knowledge, he talks about asceticism, he talks about legalism, and he says these things have the appearance of um, of of wisdom and godliness, and but they are of of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, um, what I did in that in that chapter was unpack what each of those are and. Uh, the Colossian heresy is, is an interesting heresy. A lot of books have been written on it. Um, but from a careful reading of Colossians, you can see that whatever the whatever we want to call the Colossian heresy, it had a focus on, first off, secret knowledge, that we somehow 
can enter into the spiritual realm, the really the forbidden spiritual realm, and interact with these spirits, and this somehow is going to control our fate. Uh, that was that thinking was very much rooted in the mystery religions uh, in Rome at that time, and uh, the second one is, is legalism, which is uh, in the Colossian heresy. There was a, an element of in in some way observing the mosaic law like sabbaths and and uh do not eat the food laws uh holy days um was in some way a way that was going to mortify your flesh or 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 advance you spiritually and another one was asceticism asceticism is the withdrawing from the world and we see that in colossians when paul says you see these do not touch do not taste all these things are commandments of men destined to perish. So we see those things in Colossians, and all of those things, Paul says, these have the appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value. So Paul says, these do not pursue these things. And what's interesting is the all of those things, uh, although they were very much evident in, in Colossae and in the surrounding uh, Roman culture, uh, their essence has echoed throughout the uh, age of the church. Today, you still have books and teachings of people saying we need to enter into the spiritual realm and bind that which is preventing us from advancing. And that's how you are really going to find freedom in the Christian life. Same with legalism. There are all sorts of man-made rules that people will exhort. And in the context here, it, um, it seems that the Colossian heresy was rooted in, in, in the Mosaic law. And now there we would say the Mosaic law was good. It had, it, it had a good function. It was created by God. It was, it was actually delivered by Christ at the time of the Exodus. And it had its good and perfect purposes. The law of God is perfect. So there's nothing wrong with the law. And some Christians kind of see the law as a bad thing. Um, What's well, bad and what it does to us, it, it reveals us as sinners. That's probably why we associate it. But the law of God is good and perfect. But we need to be careful because if we mandate a return to certain elements of the uh, Mosaic law, um, Sabbath-keeping or the food laws, uh, Paul says, let no one act as your judge in regarding to these things, because the, uh, that was the shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. Then you have asceticism, and there's still all sorts of teachings that if you just can withdraw from the world, go find a quiet place, and just be there with your thoughts, and get away from the things that you shouldn't be touching, you shouldn't be thinking about, you shouldn't be tasting, uh, that's what's going to. So it's bas it's a spatial issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and throughout history, there's been evidence after evidence after evidence about the you the people that withdraw from the world and think that they, if they put themselves in an ivory tower that they're going to avoid sin, they either go nuts or they're tormented by their own flesh. Remember, that's the biggest enemy 
is our own sinfulness. And if you're around just there thinking about yourself, that's the most miserable subject to think about, and it's going to drive you nuts. So all well, of a good these, example of that would be the the story of Martin Luther. Luther was a good one, yes, and I, I might have actually noted that in there, but I can't. I cannot remember. Another good one is, is Simon Stylites, who set himself up on a pole for like fifteen years, and people had to just come up and clean up after him. And that's why we say the saint, the real saints, were those that <laughs> sat around and cleaned up with after him for fifteen years, not not the one sitting up on the pole doing who knows what, just wanting to be away from people. So, anyways. Legalism, asceticism, and and secret spiritual knowledge, all of these things are an activity, and all of them have the appearance. You know, you can see, oh, yeah, that has the appearance of, of religion, of godliness. But all of them reveal kind of an essence. And what what they all do is they direct people away from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And anything that does not cause one to have their eyes fixed on Jesus, on his perfect work, on his sufficiency, uh, on his gospel, is something that is a spiritual pitfall. And I can attest, I, many of these things, I, as a young Christian, I tasted. And they did. They caused me to fall into a spiritual pitfall. Because they did not, and that's what Paul's answer in Colossians is, they are not causing one to hold fast to the head. Because he is the one that is all supreme and is all sufficient. The law was fulfilled in him. He is now all we need. As believers in Christ, all you need is Christ. He is the one that has, he's all sufficient. And that's what Paul is trying to get across in Colossians. Um, and as far as spiritual chasing after spiritual knowledge. He has given us the knowledge that we need in his word. Therefore, pursuing other things is both forbidden and dangerous and will be preventative. And asceticism is uh, is something that has been popular throughout church history and is still popular today. Maybe, well, it's in some parts of the world, it's mm-hmm. still to that degree, but we find it in other areas too. But asceticism is a an implicit denial of one of God's uh, means of grace that he has given his people to sanctify them. So maybe that would be a good, uh, you know, springboard into what, what, what does it really mean to walk by the Spirit? Mm-hmm. Um, so we see these things as spiritual pitfalls. So Paul says all of these things have the appearance of godliness but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the, the question then is, what is a value? Okay, what is a value? Now, first and foremost, we know that whatever is a value needs to be rooted in the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, um, as we read in Galatians in chapter, uh, chapter 5, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not uh, bring to fruition the desires of the flesh. When I read that as a young Christian, I I noticed that, and I'm like, that's it. It is the answer. It's the God-breathed answer. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, there was excitement there, but there was also some trepidation, because the, the, the question Back is... That's a war issue, then. Well, there's the war issue, and, okay, walk by the Spirit. How? <laughs> yeah. What does that mean, to walk by the Spirit? 
And to walk by the Spirit, first and foremost, is to walk in accordance with the teachings and the prescriptions of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is intimately tied to the work of the Spirit. Remember when, uh, at, in Pentecost, when, uh, when the Spirit was poured out, this is the, this is the, the along with the cross, this was the, in resurrection, this is the beginning of the establishing of the New Covenant and the effects of the New Covenant. So the New Covenant community, they believed. They repented and believed. 3,000 people believed in the beginning of, uh, we read of in the beginning of Acts. And then we read what this New Covenant community did. In Acts 2.42, we see that the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And how were they living? It says they were continually devoting themselves. Now, the Greek word uh, for walk in, in Galatians chapter 6 is really being used to denote how one carries out their everyday living. How are you walking? It's not speaking of literally walking. It's how are you carrying out your life? And are you doing it by the Spirit? And as we look in, in Acts, we see this new covenant community was formed th- uh, by a sovereign act of God, uh, the preaching of the gospel, regeneration, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, in Acts 2.42, is declared that they were continually devoting themselves. Now, continually devoting is a parallel, I think, to walking. It's how they were carrying out their lives, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, I will contend that by devoting oneself to these things with a heart of faith, meaning trusting in the scriptures, what they say here, and you, and, and through these things, having one, one's eyes fixed on Christ and his gospel, that is walking by the Spirit. Remember what the Spirit was going to do. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Spirit. He will glorify me. And so as we look at what is said in Acts 2.42, I do think that gives us the answer. And by the way, that I spoke of the... Um, the scholarship paper I wrote, that was the thrust of that paper, was how does one walk by the Spirit? I used Acts 2.42 as kind of a template. Um, again, this isn't a formula. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a framework. This is a framework. And the more you read the Scriptures, and actually the more you think about what has been used by God and His grace to sanctify you, you'll see everything falling in, mostly everything, falling into these things. The reason why I think it's important to make a distinction here, not saying absolutely everything, is um, God often uses suffering to to sanctify us. Mm-hmm. We read that in the scriptures. Uh, but the reason there's a distinction here is suffering is not something we are commanded to devote ourselves to. And that, that's another error of asceticism. And, and you brought up Luther. Luther thought suffering could get, you know, mm-hmm. by him putting suffering upon himself, flagellating himself, that he would uh, be able to cur- curtail the flesh, which he found out he couldn't. Uh, so, and that's why I, I think it's important to have that chapter as well. But as far as what we are called to devote ourselves to, I think there, there are really th- three aspects here. Now, I've taken breaking of bread, which I think is communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, 
and and kind of combine that with fellowship uh, because that uh, that meal of remembrance is intended to be as we read of in first corinthians a meal of of remembrance uh, of the community of the body so it's part of a fellowship although it has a distinction there so the word of god or the apostles teaching prayer and fellowship fellowship of believers are the three primary means God uses to sanctify his people. And even I would encourage the listeners of the podcast to do is just sit back and think of what has changed you in the sense of transforming you and conforming you to the image of Christ. What can you look at? And almost all the time you're going to be able to associate the Word of God with these things because it is the Word of God through which we we are changed. And even how we begin is when we hear the gospel, we are hearing the proclamation of God's Word. And thus, it is that which initially God uses to save us, but it's also what He uses to continually sanctify us. So the Word of God really has a primacy here. But let's remember what the Word of God is intended to do. We talked about this. I can't remember if we talked about this now or before we started, but how... (laughs) (laughs) But again... It's the evening. We're getting tired. Yeah, I know. The Scriptures are uh, the testimony of God's Son. You see Christ throughout the Scriptures. So by devoting oneself to the Scriptures with the heart of faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are going to see... Jesus, his person, his work. That's how we know him. Mm-hmm. That's how we know who he is, what he's done. That's how we know his teaching is through his word. That is what God uses to sanctify us. Secondly, prayer. Prayer is fixing our eyes on the Father through the high priesthood of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the way we cry out, Abba, Father, is through the Spirit. So, again, I'm, tr- I'm trying to show you how these things the Spirit is intimate with all of these things. It's not that the Spirit is separate from these things. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures. The Spirit preserved the Scriptures. The Spirit uh, goes forth with the Scriptures. Um, And as it is with prayer, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in prayer. And what the Holy Spirit is doing, as His mission is, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And finally, we have fellowship. And I even noted... Uh, made a mental note earlier when you were talking about how being around other believers has been such a blessing to you. And that That is one of the means that God has used to cause you Absolutely. to grow. Absolutely. And uh, again, you, you, you see that fellowship of believers is something that God uses to uh, to sanctify us, to keep us accountable, to encourage us, to lift us up, mm-hmm. to maybe give us a rebuke when we need it. That again, the fellowship of believers, and what what is um, the usage of spiritual gifts? Again, mm-hmm. remember that term, spiritual gifts. These are gifts given by the Spirit. So, kind of dovetailing with this, or, or juxtaposing it rather to asceticism. You see, asceticism is really walking the other way of Christian fellowship. It's walking away from serving the body, but it's also walking away from the body serving you. And that is where the spirit is actively involved. And I noted this that in the in the in the book that in First Corinthians, Paul talks about you are God's temple, where His spirit dwells, and the you there is plural. 
So speaking of the, the, the gathering of believers, together is where God's Spirit dwells. Thus, if you remove yourself from fellowship, you're removing yourself from a sphere where God has said, my Spirit is at work. And I think all of us uh, can look back. We, I know all of us can look back and see how fellowship is has been used for those of us that believe mm-hmm. has been used by God to not only perhaps bring us into the kingdom with someone giving us a bible or preaching the word of God to us but also in our walks as Christians so That's those right. things are spirit filled but remembering their intent is to fix our eyes on Jesus and the the author and finisher of our faith so even in fellowship in Christian fellowship what we are doing is continually calling ourselves to fix our eyes on Christ, mm-hmm. who has bought us all, who purchased us to be a, a people zealous for good works. And that is our, our, that's going to be our eternal allotment, our eternal inheritance is forever we'll be fixing our eyes on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, you know, that's something that I noted as well as, um, and, and this is, maybe you'll get to this later, I'll wait. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, well, I think we're um, we're actually getting close to time to wrap up. But, okay, um, I wanted to mention before we do that you talked about Acts two forty two, mm-hmm. and probably remember we we discussed this at length in our previous episode. Yes, uh, I don't recall off the top of my head which one that was, but I'll have the link in. Yeah, in that would be good. Uh, show notes if people are interested. And um, this is episode thirty five, so echozoe dot com slash thirty five. If you're if you got the episode through iTunes or some other method, if you want to go to the website, echozoe.com slash 35, I'll have that link in there. And um, I, I might also, if I remember to do so, I'll get it into the conclusion of the show when I close out. I'll, by then I'll have time to look it up mm-hmm. and um, point you to the Means of Grace episode. And uh, we had a whole hour on um, yep. Acts 2.42. Yep. Very, very fruitful. Yes. And uh, But before we call it quits, I uh, just wanted to give you a chance. I talked a lot over the last hour but <laughs> yeah. is, if there's anything else you want to mention or well there's two uh, things actually one I, I i i didn't bring the full circle with the colossians either what's mm-hmm. interesting is now that we see the uh, uh the word of god prayer and fellowship um remember paul at the end of two is talking about how all of the the pitfalls legalism asceticism um mm-hmm. and uh, secret knowledge they have the appearance of godliness but aren't of freshly indul- uh, aren't of any value against fleshly indulges. In chapter 3, then he starts telling us what is a value. First, it's all about recognizing our position in Christ, that we have our righteousness in, in him. Therefore, put away that which is old in you and and, and by God's grace bring into uh, action that which is new, the new self, as is said there, the new man. And then he says, he exhorts the people uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Word of God. Um, he also says, "Do not let or be bound together in love." So there is a, there is a rich call to fellowship there. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, uh, at the beginning of chapter four, devote yourselves to prayer. So we see there, Paul tells us what is not a value, but then expounds the means of grace again. So you'll find these confirmations over and over again in the scriptures, and I keep finding them. And that you would think after going through the New Testament and the Old Testament for as many times as I had, you'd think I would get them all, but it just keeps coming out. I keep finding other instances where these things are very much at work. 
And it's just, um, like I said, we're just scratching the surface of the rich treasure of God's word. And the second thing is, is the, the pilgrim's path ends on, it's called a foretaste of glory. And basically all of these things that the word of God and fellowship and prayer are things that we are doing now, but they're going to be things that we continue to do in all eternity. And in fact, they'll be revolutionized. No longer will we simply be reading the word, but we're going to be before the feet of the master and hearing the word of God from his own lips. Prayer is not going to be across the great divide because we're not going to be pilgrims anymore. We're going to cease to be pilgrims and we'll be able to communicate with our king face to face. And fellowship is no longer going to be uh, one section of the universal church gathering in a localized expression. Christ is going to gather all of his people Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and combine and and bring a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue together, and we're going to fellowship together, looking towards Christ again as the author and finisher. And I was just talking to to you, Andy, about this um, my next book that I have on the um, that I'm actually working on right now, which is called The New Jerusalem, and it very much is uh, a, a a suitable follow up to the three books that I've done already. Because the New Jerusalem is about this city. What is this city? What is it like? What's going to be going on there in the New Jerusalem? Who's involved? And um, all of these concepts that we're talking about, uh, the means of grace, are things that will be richly at work in the New Jerusalem. So just going through, again, kind of refreshing my mind about this book itself is, is motivating me to to get cracking. I'm hopeful. I'm hoping to have that done by next fall, if wow. the Lord so wills. Yep. Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, that's like too long because I, I, there's too much things I have going on as well. So yeah, yeah keep me in prayer on that. I will. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for uh, another uh, great topic. And yep. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure. It's always the uh, same from, from my side as well. So thank you. And um, we'll probably be talking again soon. Sounds good. That wraps up another episode. If you like the topic and want more, you can get the book in either paperback or ebook format through signetringministries.org or via the Amazon affiliate link at echozoe.com slash 35. The ebook is not yet available through the Kindle store, though, so the affiliate link is for paperback only. Also, last time Ryan had a book come out and we did a podcast, we did a giveaway. We're going to do it again with this one, but a little different this time. I really want to hear from you, so send me an email. I'll randomly pick five emailers to win a copy of the book. So send me an email, and the deadline for that will be the end of the day on Saturday, April 9th, 2011. The giveaway will be for ebooks, though, and there are two formats available. When you email, let me know if you want the Mobi version, which will work on the Amazon Kindle, or the EPUB version, which should work on just about everything else. If you have an Apple iPad, a Barnes & Noble Nook, or a Sony e-reader, you'll want the EPUB version. The email address that you can reach me at changes, though, to stay ahead of spammers. So the best way to find the current one is to go to the website, and at the top, next to where it says About, there's a small icon of an envelope. Click on that to send me an email. Also, I mentioned in the interview that we previously recorded an entire episode based on Acts 2.42, The Means of Grace. That was episode number 10 back in February 2009 and is available at echozoe.com slash 10. That's one zero for the number 10. 
For show notes and links, check out echozoe.com slash 35. You'll find out how to find me on Twitter, how to find the Facebook page for the show, and how to sign up for email alerts to new episodes. Thanks again for listening, and Lord willing, I'll be back in April for episode number 36. 